1996, a book was written by a man named Charles J. Sykes. Uh, he was an education reformer, and he wrote of 11 rules for students that I want to share with you as we begin today. <clears throat> the first rule, rule number one, is this. Life is not fair. Get used to it. Rule number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. Expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Rule number three, and remember this is 1996, you will not make $40,000 a year right out of high school. You won't be a vice president with a car phone. We used to have car phones back then. Until you earn both a high school and college diploma. Rule number four. If you think your teacher is tough, wait until you get a boss. He doesn't have tenure. <laughs> Rule number five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. Rule number six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault. So don't whine about your mistakes. Learn from them. Rule number seven, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, and listening to you talk about how cool you are. So before you save the rainforest from the parasites of your parents' generation, try delousing the clothes in your own room. Rule number eight, your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they have abolished failing grades. They'll let you try as many times as you want to get the right answer. That doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Rule number nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off, and very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Rule number 10, my favorite rule, television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop to go to their jobs. <laughs> and rule number 11, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. Now, students right now, you're probably thinking, man, I can't wait to, that's the worst preacher I've ever heard. <laughs> the reason I told you that was written in 1996 is to, for you to understand this. And the title of the book was The Dumbing Down of America. How we're teaching our kids to feel good about themselves, but they can't read, write, or add. And those kids in 1996 had parents of the previous generation and grandparents of the generation before that. So the way I see it, all of us have participated, if this is true, all of us have participated in growing a culture of entitlement and growing a culture where many, many, many of us are soft in our thinking, we're soft in our bodies, we're soft in our expectations. It's been a conviction of mine for some time now that times are going to get harder. It's one reason I've started getting in shape and losing weight and working on my body again like I used to. It's a reason why I've spent more time in prayer and in the Word. It's a reason why I'm trying to get hard again. We preachers have often been complicit 
In order to attract a crowd, we soften the truth. But you can't read 2 Thessalonians without understanding. Life is tough. The Thessalonian church was surrounded by persecution. And so Paul has been teaching them about the second coming and about the Antichrist. And then when he gets to the passage we talk about today, as 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17, he says this, you need to be prepared to endure. Pat Williams was a great man. He was a general manager of the Orlando Magic, the NBA team. Also a fervent Christian. He wrote a book called How to Be Like Jesus. And in the middle of it, he writes this. If we want to be like Jesus, we must endure like Jesus. We need to persevere under pressure as Jesus did. If it hasn't happened already, a time will come when you must endure like Jesus. No one in history deserved to be more honored and respected than Jesus of Nazareth. Yet, he was treated with contempt and put to death. If we endure like Jesus, our battle scars will be the righteous and beautiful wounds of those who have taken a courageous stand against evil. Our wounds will be like his. I'm talking today about the power of truth. I'm talking about what it takes to live powerfully in a culture that is at best indifferent to Christianity. At worst is hostile to it. I'm talking about things that can make your life to come much more effective. Not easier, but beneficial for you and those around you. How do we live powerfully? First, powerful living, this passage tells us, requires informed heads. It requires informed heads. In other words, in verses 13 through 15, I think he talks a lot about doctrine. He talks a lot about the basic truth, the gospel message. And it has five parts. In verse 13, it says, you were loved. You were loved. The verse reads like this. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. Because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. <clears throat> you were loved. The Bible tells us that, doesn't it? You know, oftentimes in life, a problem is that we don't feel loved. But you can know this, that God loves you if no one else does. And chances are someone around you does love you, but you can know that God does love you. Because of God's love for you, I think you're not alone. Because of God's love for you, you are not junk. Because of God's love for you, you are not a mistake. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. And I've told you this before, I'll tell you it again. And maybe put your name there. For God so loved Sid that he gave his only begotten son. So that Sid might not perish, but he might have eternal life. God's desire and his offer is, even for the people that reject him and spit in his face, or his people's face, his desire is those folks might know they're loved. They're not a mistake. They are loved by him. Secondly, verse 13 also said to you, you were chosen. You were chosen. Again, verse 13, but we always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Maybe you had that 
ignominious experience of having teams being chosen in PE when you're in school and you being one of the last to be chosen. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Or to have that job that you're applying for that's perfect for you and, and you don't get it. Or maybe that secret crush that you have on that boy or that girl is not responded to. It's terrible to be unchosen. But what we need to understand is that God elected, God chose each one of us. It is God's desire that we be his sons and daughters. He, he won't make us respond to him, uh, but he wants us to know we are chosen. Uh, third here, I think he says you were called. You were called. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you. What did he call you for? Uh, what we need to understand and remember is that each one of us have a purpose. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. Your ministry gifts are going to be different than my ministry gifts, but make no mistake, every one of us has a purpose. That's why Rick Warren's book I still recommend. It's been some years now since it came out, but A Purpose Driven Life is powerful teaching. God has a purpose for each one of us. We each have a place in the kingdom. Uh, We need not understand that we are here just to drift through life. Even if you have uh, incapacitating illness, which makes it hard for you to get out anymore or to move around, you still have purpose. Uh, We never retire from the kingdom. We never retire from life. Purpose for us through each year of our life, each decade of our life. You were chosen, he says. Verse 14 and 15 say, you believe the gospel. You responded in faith, the Thessalonians Christians. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. The very heart of this passage is verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast. Endure, persevere, and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, which he called before in verse 13, the truth. Hold fast to the truth we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. You believed. We all have to decide what we believe. You see, it's become popular in our culture to to say relativistically that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Well, I will tell you, I've, I've studied in uh, secular philosophy, uh, epistemology. It's a big term, I know, but it really is how we come to believe what we believe, how we come to believe what is fact and what is not. You really need to think through that because I believe what we believe forms the core of our life, the core of our response, the core of who we're going to be. And I will say to you, the reason as a church we are evangelistic is I believe all around us in this place, in this county, in the surrounding counties, there are people who need the Lord. There are people who need to have faithfully lived before them, faithfully taught to them the truth of the gospel. That's up to us. That's up to me. That's up to you. It's on them to respond, but we need to be faithful. I say, and you may have heard this when you're talking to me, uh, somebody will say, well, they're lost. They're not a believer. And I will say, they're not a believer 
yet. They're not a Christian yet. I think it's vital for us to hear that. The, the truth, the Bible says of itself, is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. If we present it with our words, if we present it with how we live, it will win souls. It will be believed. I wonder today, how much do you believe the truth? How much do you build your life on the truth? The fifth part of what we believe, I think he's talking about here, is you share in Christ's glory. You share in Christ's glory. This is very encouraging to me. What this means is if I determine to persevere and endure like Jesus, if I determine to be faithful to him, even if that brings me unpopularity, even if that brings me persecution, even if people call me names because of that, I know that's not the end of the story. But what that tells me is, even though the temptation of fear and, and of doubt creep into my mind, I know that's not the end of the story. Your doubts are not the end of the story. Your fears are not the end of the story. Your worries are not the end of the story. Your uncertainties are not the end of the story. Your unbelief is not the end of the story. If we believe in him, if we suffer with him, this verse says, and it says in other places in the New Testament, we will reign with him. We'll participate in that glory as well. Better days are coming because Jesus rose from the dead. The grave will not have the last word. So we need to have informed minds. We need to know what the truth of God's word says. And we need to believe it. We need to stand on it. Secondly, this passage says we need to have inspired hearts. We need to have inspired hearts. Verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or letter. I find it easier to be strong when I believe. I find it easier to be strong, to be inspired when my heart is touched, not just my head. And I think that's what he's saying here. The, the core of what you believe should inspire you. It should touch not just your mind, the things you think about, the things you say, but your heart, who you are deep down. And it should be the core of your motivation, the core of the driver in you. You should be about those things. You know, it's funny, and one reason I, I like that uh, 11 truths for students I read earlier is I can so identify with it. I think it's very normal to be idealistic when you're young. I think it's very normal to, to understand and know and these things, these concepts, these principles, but it's also a commonplace for you to think you know more than you do. You know, when I got out of Bible college and then seminary, man, I was full of all kinds of information about all these theories and uh, uh, these teachings. But I got out in the real world and I saw a lot of what all that stuff we talked about, we debated, we hashed out. People don't care about real life. Even more, I found over 30 years of ministry that a lot of the things we talk about are, are really secondary issues. They're not primary. Let me tell you what I've come to believe is most important. What I stake my life on, what I 
build my life on. The Bible is true. God is holy, just, and good. His mercies endure forever. Jesus is Lord. His blood cleanses us from every sin. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is now enthroned in heaven. One day he will return to the earth. The God who created me has a purpose for my life. All things work together for good. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me. And it gives me great comfort and encouragement and the ability to persevere. At the core of my faith is an unshakable belief in the sovereignty of God. To summarize that, I would say this. He is God and I'm not. When you get that down, you've made some progress. He is God and I'm not. That inspires me. That motivates me to spend my life working for him, living for him, loving for him. It is those truths that inspire us. You know, 20 years later, you think it would have been made before now. 20 years ago this week, and now there's a sequel. Maybe some of you have already seen it, Independence Day Resurgence. 20 years ago, believe it or not, 1996, Will Smith was not a big movie star. But after this movie, he was. It depicts kind of this fantastic story of aliens coming from another planet and, and wanting to take over the earth. Uh, they decimate the White House and other places, and, and there's just ragtag groups of, of Americans left, of soldiers and fighter pilots. And probably the, uh, and I've, I've read this in several places, probably the most memorable cinematic patriotic speech ever is given at the beginning of Act 3 by the president who's played by Bill Pullman. His name in the movie is Thomas Whitmore. He's also in the new movie. But as the pilots are gathered together to, to kind of make a last stand, they're outnumbered tremendously. You know, when I read about this speech this week, it actually is inspired by Shakespeare's Henry V. When King Henry gives this speech to his vastly outnumbered army uh, on St. Crispin Day before the Battle of Agincourt. But in this speech, Thomas Whitmore he gets the microphone and he says this. Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. The word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it is fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day? The 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, 
we celebrate our Independence Day. I don't know about you, but as I watched a clip of that this week, I got those bumps on the arms. And that moves me as an American. But hear me clearly. I think that speech easily, easily could be about a spiritual battle that we're all in. And I say this to you, I think the greatest enemy of humankind today is not from another world. It is from within. Mankind thinking that we can do it ourselves and there is no God. And so I say to all of us that we need to fight for our freedom. We need to fight to maintain the ability, the courage, the strength to stand on God's truth, to stand with God's value, to live and to speak God's values into this world which tries to erase him out. And that leads me to what he concludes with here. Powerful living requires involved hands. Verses 16 and 17. Powerful living requires involved hands. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, Dr. Fincher did a good job of explaining that text to you. Uh, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us internal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Good deed and word. You see, it's not enough for us in our bedrooms, us in our living rooms, to talk about what we believe. We must live it. We must speak it. John Piper said in one of his sermons, the universe exists so that we may live our life in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is more precious than life. That truth doesn't answer all of our questions But it does provide a framework uh, for an answer that will prove true and strong in the worst moments of life. When tragedy strikes, when life caves in, when your plans are dashed on the jagged rocks of reality, when you find yourself in a place you never wanted to be, that's when you discover what you truly believe. As long as things are going good, you really don't care or know what you believe. It's all theoretical. It's very important for you to hear what I'm about to say. You discover your theology at midnight. Anyone can sing praise the Lord when life is good. You've got money in the bank. Your marriage is strong. Your kids are doing well. You're happy in your job. You love your church and all is right with the world. But when it gets tough, can you say praise the Lord? Can you live with joy. So with Paul and Silas, you can sing praise at midnight in jail. If you can do that, then what you've got is real. Not only will you discover what you believe in times of trouble, that's also when the world around you will discover what you really believe. Either God is enough or he isn't. Either Jesus is more precious than life or he isn't. But the truth comes out always. And in those moments when you rest your weary soul on the God of the universe, when you cry out to Jesus and discover that he is really, really there after all, 
then you'll discover he was there all along. Everything he said turns out to be true. And the people who watch you will know that you really believe what you say you believe. And having seen the difference that Jesus makes in the worst moments of life, that's when they will want what you have. So I'm going to ask you today to join me and commit to figure out what you believe. And then believe it with all you got. Live it. Say it. Stand for it. Be strong in it. That's the power of truth. Fathers, we think about these things today. I pray that you have taught us or reminded us. I pray that we as a church, we as individual Christians would not be soft. For life is not easy. But you're bigger, Lord, than anything we could face. And you are there for us. Your truth is a solid foundation upon which we can build our lives and live our lives. Help us to be bold in what we believe. Help us to live powerfully in your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.